Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. On Long Final, Ireland's aviation podcast from Squawk 7000. Angelo, you're very welcome to Long Final. One of the gentlemen of aviation that I've been looking forward to talking to for a while because we know you from a variety of things, including some of the air shows around the country uh, and indeed flying at them as well. Yes. Well, thanks for the invite, Mike. Um, I, I seem to be in, in hallowed company when I looked at uh, some of the other people who were there and I'm thinking, well, why me? You know? Yes. You're, yeah. I, I've, I've been involved in air displays. Uh, God, must be going back. Till I think it was the last air show in Ferry House. And then with Air Spectacular for a number of years, and then with Ulster um, air shows with Jeff Salter. And then uh, being sort of commentator, uh, which was the main thing, and then organizer down in Abbey Shrule. And then recently, uh, mm. when I say recently, the last few years, I displayed um, my bulldog at Bray. And recently, uh, I've had the honour of displaying the, the Catalina. Now, we're going to talk definitely about the Catalina in a few minutes, but tell me about the Bulldog. Well, um, when I was a few years before I retired, I, I thought it's, it's time now to think about something because my, my kids had grown up and um, they were at an age where the alpha was just a pain in the, the proverbial and <laughs> they were all earning their own money so I said I'll, I'll do something in a fit of madness and I came across a bulldog. Now I'd flown it before uh, a, a good friend of mine Kieran Thompson um, who's in Newport over in County Mayo. He had one and we went flying in it and he gave me a loan of it to fly around to do the air shows in in Northern Ireland with it. And I fell in love with the aeroplane. And in fact, the two of us flew it. We had the red arrows displaying in Abishrul one year, and we had to get out of Abishrul very quickly. You know about sanitized airspace. So we're in our flight suits. We're, we were over on the north side where we all gathered. The airplane's parked on the south side. And the civil defence would, wouldn't let us cross the runway to get out. That's <laughs> uh, my job, you know, sorry. Yeah. What my job is worth. So we jumped out there and we went off down to Ultimate High, uh, at, who were based at Kemble at the time, and we did formation flying practice, training down there in the Bulldog. And it's a smashing little aeroplane to fly, two-seater trainer. I still have it parked up and hanging up in, in Abishul. And myself and my son, Derek, who's a first officer flying A330s, we now fly it around. So it's, uh, yeah, 
it's it's my little bit of indulgence and i could just have some nice characteristics from what i've read about yeah what's it like spinning um i've only done it once and she came out of it i I know how to come out of it and now i said that's it i ain't doing no more Um, i've done plenty of spinning in my time and uh yeah you know what it happens you know what you got to do and the training i got at oxford back in the 70s kick in and um, she comes out. But if, you know, in the manual, it, it tells you where, you know, the raft, you have to go very high and you wear parachutes. Mm. And if you go in, if you don't get to such and such a height, and you don't recover it, you step out of it. But I wouldn't let it develop into a multi-turn mm. spin at all and, and get ahead of steam on it. So let it go a couple of turns, take it out and that's it. But, uh, you know your airplane. That's yeah. it. Other than that, she's lovely to fly. You can trim it for takeoff. You know, you have to use rudder for takeoff in a lot of airplanes. You just set the, the rudder trim and she'll go straight down the runway. Mm-hmm. The view out of it is very good, although on a hot day, you kind of cook in it with that perspex around you. But it's it's just a joy to fly. It really is. <laughs> Let's go back then yeah. to the beginning. Well, at least you mentioned Oxford, but I'm sure there's a story before that about you first getting a grow for aviation. When did it start? It started when I was in early in secondary school. I think before I left primary school, I was always interested because my dad worked for Shell and BP, Lord Restham, and he would take us to the airport. We'd go up of an, an evening to look at airplanes. And in those days, you'd be waiting for a hell of a long time for airplanes to come in. But we'd sit there and... Um, he encouraged me. Um, so I was the first in, in this part of the Cunningham plan to get into aviation. And um, he worked for, as I said, for Shell. So he got access to the AeroShell magazine and AirBP, and he'd bring them home to me. Now, he, he also got stuff on Formula One racing. I had absolutely no interest in it. I wasn't a petrol head at all. I just wanted aeroplanes. And some of those early magazines, that, and these were high-class, glossy things, and I still have them. So if I were ever as asked, like, you know, Desert Island Discs, for example, what would you bring with you? I, I would bring mm. those magazines with me because they were the ones that encouraged the dream, if you know what I mean. And I looked at those and I wanted desperately to get into flying. And it'd be nice to take them and have them and say, well, I, I lived the dream. I got there. <laughs> so I, I would bring them with me. Um, so Dublin Airport figured large. And then um, my dad organized for me to get a trip in a rally with the Leinster Club oh, way right. back when. And that was I, – I, I, Dan, somebody, I can't remember the man's name, you know, which is dreadful. But anyway, um, and then another time uh, there was the Bally Free Air Show. Went down there and mm. I met Sheila Scott, the famous aviatrix. And I remember that well because I wanted her autograph. And we had no piece of paper. We had a pen, but no paper. And my mother, Lord Rester, had her rosary book. So we <laughs> tore a blank page out of the rosary book. And, and I have a signature from Sheila Scott, which, uh, which I've kept to this very day. And then uh, Douglas Bader was there, but I was too afraid to go up and talk to him, you know. Um, I think it was Douglas Bader. But anyway, um, so... We spent a lot of time on the West Coast, particularly Clare and Quilty, and we'd go and venerate the shrine at um, Shannon Airport. Mm. And those were in the halcyon days of Shannon Airport, where you had VC-10s training, you had 707s, you had 747s. The odd DC-8, I think, appeared, did some circuit bashing, and Concorde was there. 
All right. And funnily enough, I was I was on the Intrepid Museum in New York many years ago when I was operating the A330. I went on board. They had a, they have they have a Concorde parked beside it on a barge, but inside in, in the hangar deck they had an exhibition and they had these videos, and they were actually showing the guys doing their circuit training at Shannon, and they'd have the guy's name written. And this is first officer, you know. Mm. Nigel, whatever, and um, <laughs> he's you know learning to fly the Concorde. And I remember standing under the approach lights, and it doing a go around. And honest to God, how I didn't we didn't go stone deaf. I'll never know. Mm. So that's where it started. And then, then one day, one of our neighbours uh, who worked at the airport, uh, Larry O'Brien, he took me up of a Saturday morning to the hangars, and he just opened the door to me and the first airplane i got on was echo india alpha mike whiskey was the flagship 707 for Erlingus. Nice. and i was amazed and the second one i got onto was the bac 111 and you know it led on from there so uh that really got things going and then um got a, a, a day down on the ramp in shannon and got on VC-10s, DC-8s, 707s. We went for a weekend. My dad was training people to um, operate filling stations and petrol stations and all that sort of stuff. And he got to know this guy down on the main road, just outside Limerick, Caradavan. And he had a caravan parked at the back of the garage. <laughs> we went down on a Friday night and we camped at the caravan and went home on Sunday and spent all day Saturday um, on the ramp in Shannon. So I was very lucky that I, I had all of these, and, and he arranged for me to have a spin around the ramp at Dublin Airport when the first Lockheed TriStar came in. It was the the, the oh, I that. the one with all the logos yeah. on it. So mm, we, I got to fly in that actually as a child. Oh, well, you were lucky because all I got to do was drive around it in a in a air. Well, there you go, van. small world. There you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pen is still somewhere here. There was a giveaway <laughs> pen as well. Oh yeah, I've got things like that, and my wife is always on to me. Get rid of this stuff, you know. But no, I mean, no, no, yeah, no. So. Uh, and then uh, I used to write a lot to aircraft companies, you know, Hawker Sidley, mm. um, British Aircraft Corporation, and Vickers. And the amount of stuff they sent back was amazing. And I still. The merchandise. Yeah, 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 I still have that stuff. You know, technical magazines that they sent out and all that kind of carry on. And then I met people who flew them, and it was mm. just, oh, brilliant. So that was the early. A career beckoned, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, and I was incredibly lucky, Michael, where um, it's been my career. So I started in aviation mm. in 1972, and I'm still, you know, pottering around in it. And when I grow up, I want to be a pilot. That's my big ambition in life, Michael, <laughs> so I'll keep plugging away at it. Uh, how, what was your first job in aviation? I started as uh, an apprentice aircraft engineer in 1972 with Aer Lingus. And I was with a great bunch of guys, and, and some of them went on to, you know, great jobs in the aviation business as well. And we, we meet up every now and again. Um, mm. So I don't know if any of the class of 72 are, are listening, and I, w I won't list them all off in case I leave somebody out and I'll never be spoken to again by the lot of them. But a great bunch of guys, and um, they, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time with them and went through the apprenticeship course there in Bolton Street. And... Uh, at, at that time in Bolton Street, the, the head of the department uh, was a guy called Tom McInerney, and he was a great character. Like, I met a couple of guys, uh, and 
I don't know if the term is correct, but a man's man, you kind of stuff, the guy who, who you'd respect straight off, he'd catch you goofing around and he'd tell you off in no uncertain terms. He was a, an ex-flight sergeant from the Air Corps, head of the prop shop, engine shop, or whatever the case might be in the Air Corps. And then he went into Aer Lingus and then he became head of the department. But if you showed any signs of wanting to improve yourself in night classes or anything like that, he would move mountains for you. And um, a great character. Um, then um, we had another man called Mick Ford. And the ironic thing about Mick Ford, a thorough gentleman who's just recently passed away. Um, that man, Larry O'Brien, I told you about, well, he was his opposite number. Mick Ford was in New York. He was the station engineer in New York. And I only came across a photograph the other day of the original group of pilots and engineers who picked up, I think it might have been the first 720 out of Tucson. That's where they did their training. And there's these guys there. And a lot of the guys, the charge hands and the foremen, who I was an apprentice with, they're the hours, all young fellas and all that sort of stuff. So did it in, uh, did, did all that stuff. We did three years in the, um, in the college in Bolton Street. And then we did two years on the job training. But in the summertime, we'd go to the, the hangars. So we'd spend three months in the hangars. And it was during that time, like I said, you know, Tom, Mike and Ernie would do whatever you want to help you with night classes sometimes he was getting you freebies you know it, it was this kind of guy like he, he'd give you a horrendous ticking off for goofing and he's the type of guy who'll buy you a cup of tea in the canteen if he sees you an hour later and you'd never hear it again he'd, he'd never bring mm. it up you know and you, you put the effort in he'd support you but I, I started doing um, night classes for PPL and I came across the likes of the great Liam Costello, Lord rest him, who was a great instructor. Do you remember Liam at all, by any chance? Mm, yes, And then there was absolutely. another chap called uh, Barry O'Connor, who was flying DC-7s uh, for our tourists at the time. And but the type of thing in the time of days was that <clears throat> you're sitting there at 7 o'clock in the evening, and 10 past 7, there's no sign of an instructor, and then the door opens. And then Tom McInerney put his head in and says, Mr. Cunningham me to talk to you and I'm going what did I do today I'm trying to figure out you know did I commit a black somewhere and go oh my god and uh, he said Barry's been caught to go with a flight so he can't show up you take the class and I said I know nothing about meteorology or navigation he said you know things about airplanes and systems and engines get in there and talk about it for three hours so that was my first instructing job um, there so yeah, and then, then our, our paths crossed over again. Barry was instigation in, in, in me getting into Air Tourist a few years down the road. So that, that was the first uh, job I had with Air Lingus then. I, I wound up on the ramp. And then you found yourself on the flight deck. Yeah. Um, while I was there, um, and if there's any young people li you know, listening in, if, if you want to do something, you've got to work for it. So I was very keen to become... Um, you know, I thought my way in, I, I wanted to get into the cockpit anyway from the start. Mm. The flight, I think yeah. the flight deck is the, is the correct PC term, so I better watch myself here, Mike. The new one, the cockpit, yeah, yes. Yeah, I can't I say that anymore, can the I? The business end. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <We're> the... <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I studied for my basic flight engineer's license on my own at, at night. And then I met some great guys, like Danny Kennedy was a flight engineer with um, Aer Lingus at the time, and Jim Campbell. And they were great guys. They just gave me, you know, all the support that I wanted to, to do this. Mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I had to kind of work at it. And then uh, one day I pushed the jumbo back, waved the, the boys off to New York with it. And I'm walking in. I see um, Barry O'Connor and the chief engineer for our tourists. And Jerry oh, come to me. 
And they, he said to me, look, we're looking for lads who've got maintenance experience. Would you be interested in joining us as a trainee flight engineer with a job at the end of it? So I had just turned 20 at the time. And I went home and I talked to my dad. I said, Dad, you know, what am I going to do? And he said, well, let's have a look at it. Here you are in Aer Lingus. You have a job for life. You have a pension. Because Aer Lingus was like a government department mm. in those days. At the time, yeah. indeed, yeah. yeah. So I, I took the plunge and I went off and joined Air Tourists as a trainee flight engineer under a guy called Al O'Kelly. Very, a, a great guy, a lovely, lovely man. And um, the ironic thing was I met the chief pilot, you're very welcome. Had a quick chat with him. And then there's, I noticed a pile of manuals on his desk. Can you just lift them up? He gave me here, study those. And when you're ready, we put you in for an exam. So I, I was like a self-taught typewriting on the aeroplane. But I had Allo to help me out. And then it started from there. So I, I passed the exams and um, got flying with air tourists. And, and I spent a while flying, you know. What was the aircraft? The Bristol Britannia, the Whispering Giant. Ah, right. We had... Yeah. Um, two versions of it. We had the 300 series, which was built for the North American market, which had a flight engineer's panel, which was great. And then we had the 253 series, which was the ones that the Royal Air Force flew. And when they got rid of them uh, back in the 70s, a whole bunch of charter operators just ran in and grabbed them. From a flight engineer's point of view, they were a bit of a nightmare because you didn't have a dedicated panel with all the systems in front of you. You sat between the two pilots. You handled the power. So they would call a torque setting and you'd do it. So they didn't touch the power during the approach. And But you'd have to reach around the co-pilot to open up the pressure-reducing valve and check various bits and pieces. So, And behind me, there was a, a like a, a rack area. And then behind that was where the navigator would sit. And there was a cabin window in there. Right. I mean, it was luxury. So we, we would um, have our meal break in there kind of stuff. And uh, so that, that's what I did. Um, <clears throat> enjoyed with that. A bunch of great guys. Um, some of the pilots that were there, well-known. I'm not sure if I should mention the name, but all super guys, guys I looked up to. Uh, they did very well in aviation afterwards, uh, getting chief pilot jobs. Um, with airlines here in the in Ireland and uh, working for the Irish Aviation Authority and for the Maltese, and I'm sure the two guys know who I'm talking about. But there you um, go. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're being you're being unnecessarily shy. I, I'm thinking about the the airplane that you talk about, the Britannia, because it, it's timing as an airplane. It, it was it arrived at the same time as the jet age, so it was one of these cusp airplanes. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, it 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 was probably maybe five to ten years too late because like you say the jet the jet era was coming in and it, it got delayed because it was dogged with engine trouble um, it had a reverse flow compressor engine in that you know and complicated it was icing up and everything and you know at night time you'd, you'd see the needles flicking because of the ice but then we had you know we had ways of, of heating it up inside and then it didn't help where um, the purchasing team, I think from KLM, were sitting in the airplane one day and they had a serious fire and they had to put it into the Severn F's estuary. That's right. So, that, that video is still on YouTube, actually. Yeah. Yes, you can see it there. And I, and I remember, um, I hope he doesn't mind me uh, mentioning his name, but, but Mike O'Brien, I don't know if you know Mike, and, and Roger Burke and I. So Mike, the youngest oh, Roger, captain. Yes, yeah. Roger was the youngest co-pilot and I was the youngest flight engineer. We're walking out to the airplane one day, out the back of the hangars at Dublin Airport. And Mike says, well, you know what, lads? 
it's not so long ago since this aeroplane wouldn't allow the likes of us anywhere near it unless we were super senior because it was, you know, at the time it was that little stopgap that went in there. Mm. And um, it didn't really sell the way it had hoped to sell. And uh, unfortunately, there are a few companies that some Canadians bought it, uh, a couple went down to Israel, a lot of companies in the UK. And some of the guys I flew with had flown with the likes of British Eagle on them in the UK. Um, but then it came into its own as a freighter. And a lot of them uh, were flying around in the 70s and into the early 80s. And I was in, um, what was it, Kemble there before Christmas. And they've they've got one all tarted up in RAF colours down there. Yeah, there's one in Duxford as well, I think, uh, which yeah. is in the Monarch colours. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. I remember, if I'm going off at a tangent and rambling like an old giffer, just jump in, Mike, and shoot me down or something. <laughs> but... No, it's fascinating. We were, we were in um, Cyprus. We were based in Cyprus down there, and we were flying for for Cyprus Airways into the Gulf and down to Africa. And we were going to places like uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Doha, when there was nothing there, nothing right. there. But yeah. no skyscrapers. No, not a bit. And on, on one day, on approach into Dubai, a nice approach in, I counted seventy ships at anchor on one side of the airplane. That's all I had time to count because we got a little bit busy then. I had to sort of you know, mm. pay attention. And there was at least the same number on my side. And they were using helicopters to take some of the stuff off the ship. So money wasn't an object. But um, Monarch Airlines were operating um, a 707, 720 service from the UK down to Cyprus. And one of the flight engineers was a guy called Brian Barker. And Brian had a broad accent, you know, and, uh, the, you know, we'd meet them up in the local watering hole down in Larnaca. And the girls would say, he's a gas man, you know, he'd get the thing and said, hey, up, Chuck, any chance of a bucket of tea, you know, and in comes the tea. And he had a very distinctive voice. So fast forward many years later, I'm up having a look around the Britannia and you get people who are in the preservation society who look after it. Mm. And I'm having a look and then I hear this voice talking and I said, gee, that's Brian. So I went down and introduced myself to him again and, oh, my God, yeah, I remember. And I said to him, is there any chance I could go and sit in the seat for old time's sake? And he said, yeah. Mm. So he opened up the cockpit for me, let me sit back in again. And I just soaked in the atmosphere, you know, the ambience and the smells. And I said, oh, my God. So I was going to say the smell of the aircraft as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah I know. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. Could, it could be interesting when we had some of our, our, our freight passengers on board. <laughs> You know, you'd have two cows down the back. Or a, cows, you know. yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that, 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 you oh, yeah. might get a wide berth when you came home from that one. Yeah, the glamour from, of it all, you know, you'd, you'd be in your uniform and you'd have, you know, um, turf mold or whatever it is on you and you'd shake it. Manure, call no, it, it what it is. Manure, yeah. no, it wasn't that bad, like, you know, but we have them all yeah. in pens and we'd have a mm. loadmaster. And some places we have to get to, we'd have to clean up after them. So... The engineers who are great guys in air tours, Paddy Mackin and the guys, John and that, fabulous guys. And, um, but we'd have to clean the airplane up. We'd be given, you know, the black sacks and glamour. Captain would have to do it. First officer would do it. Flight engineer and the, the loadmaster. Uh, and we'd clean the airplane up and, and uh, bag everything before we come home. So. Far, far cry from the idea of a captain's day. Oh, yeah. um, when did you get this turn from sitting sideways to sitting forwards? Um, I got... I applied for the Erlingus uh, cadet scheme, the second one. And I was down in Cyprus at the time and I got word that I was successful. And 
it, it was a hard call to make because I was really I was really getting into what I was doing because you know as I, as we say to the guys on the uh, or I say to them on on, on the uh, MCC course I said look folks year one you're trying to catch up with the airplane year two you've caught up with the airplane and year three you're becoming cocky with it now I was getting into year two and I was really enjoying it and all that and then the decision came and the guys that I looked up to who I, I you know uh, because they came up the hard way they didn't have the airline they, they, they self-sponsored themselves up and they were good mm. operators Mike they were very good and they said no for God's sake you gotta go and the boss man um, who was Bluey Gardner, who was a legend at the time. Name, yeah. I mean, he said to me, no, you have to do this. So then I, I uh, went off to Oxford then to uh, start off flying training at the Oxford Air Training School and um, came back then to do my, type rate, my jet ratings in 1979. So it was an interesting time, um, a great time to be over there. Um, and the, the instructor I had on, on the twins, um, it was a guy called David Boucher. Now, Dave was a smallish man, and he was just the right size to fit in a gnat. You know the fallen gnat? Mm. He flew those. Mm. He flew hunters. But it, he, we then found out he, he flew in the Indian Air Force. Okay? But, you know, when, when you get into the airplane with him, it's like as if he sprout horns. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but he'd be pointing at the, you know, what, what is the meaning of this? What are you doing? What height are you supposed to be at? You're 100 feet off. Get back, you know, boom, boom, you know. And then you'd look, oh, my God, I, you know, what's he going to say to me? But he, 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 he got us to fly to very tight tolerances. And mm. um, he, he was one of these guys who you'd have to pump him for information, you know. So that's why I'm, I've, I've got notes here because I don't want to sound like, you know, whatever. But it wasn't until afterwards when we'd left and we went back to the ball at Oxford that we had a very posh type of thing, you know. And we're in, mm. you know, dinner jackets and all this. And Dave was in a white dinner jacket and he looked, and his wife, Eleanor, a lovely lady. And we got talking to her. It was only then we realized just who David Boucher was. Because it turned out he was an Air Commodore in the Indian Air Force. So <clears throat> we all went through there, and, and, and my colleague, Grania Cronin, was in the group that went over a month before oh, us. So yeah. this is the vintage. And another colleague of ours, Jimmy Devlin, was on that say, first group. He's over. on the list, by the way. Oh. We, we, we'll give him a warning now. We want to talk to Jimmy as well. <laughs> He'll be lucky if he hears this. He'll run a while. <laughs> I wasn't quick enough, Michael. I couldn't get out quick enough. <laughs> so that's, that's when I started flying sideways and qualified. I went, went on the 111 then, back when I got back to Dublin. The 111, that, 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 that's very fondly remembered by a lot of people. Ah, oh, that was a lovely aeroplane. Now, I was lucky I got onto it because my, my flying partner in Oxford, Andrew Tisdall, and he wanted to, he was scheduled to go on it. And I was number three on, like, if there was a quasi-seniority list, I'm going 7-3. He said, Angelo, there's a bunch of guys flying the 7-3 near me, and I'd like to go on it. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll swap. Because I wanted to fly as many different airplanes as I could. So I went on the 111. And um, I then came under the wing of a man called Bill Howarth. Um, ah, I know that name. I know that name. Yes, yeah. indeed. Bill, Formidable man in, in the, was it the Leinster Aero Club yes, as well? Yeah. Yes. But yeah. a nicer man you couldn't fly Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And a f superb pilot. And he had the patience of Job. I don't know how he put up with us. And, you know, he'd sit there and you just, 
and even when you're on a check with the man, you never felt like you're under a check with him. It was so, mm. he, and, and he had a great sense of, you know, humor and wit about him. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed that airplane. It was a lovely airplane to fly. We had the 200 series of it, the pocket rocket. Um, it, it was a bit of a, a maintenance nightmare, but like at that stage, it was a 1960 airplane. But we had four of them. And they never had an issue with corrosion, you know, whereas mm. the early 737s we got, they had to be, bellies had to be reskinned because of the process they used. But um, came across a great bunch of characters flying that airplane as well. And it's uh, strange that it had a manual trim wheel, you know, for trimming it. Mm. And it mm. was a type of airplane that you could set it up at the outer marker get it all set it up, get the gear down, get the flaps down, get the power right, have your speed right, trim it, and it would be very kind to you on the landing, you know? And mm. it was just lovely. And um, It was also on some of the more um, interesting routes as well, I think, wasn't it? It got to do some of the, you know, the, the nicer trips, the, the, um, the Germanys and the, the yeah, France. Yeah, we, we did so. Dusseldorf. We used Night Stop in Dusseldorf with it, down, and going down the Alstadt for... An evening meal. I mean, it was a dirty job, Michael, but someone had to do it. Yeah. Someone had to someone do it, I know. And from the 111? Um, the 111 then, I went on the 7, or seven as third pilot. Oh, engineer. okay. Um, mm. So spent time on that, and we had a great bunch of people on that. So we all had to do a spell of it on the either the 7.0 or the, the 7.4. Now, I didn't get to do the 7.0, and I would have loved to have done it because as an apprentice, most of the work I did was on 707s. In fact, I became mm. intimately familiar with the innards of that aeroplane because I spent a lot of time in the fuel tanks as an apprentice, working my way out and fixing it mm. and doing all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so we did time on the 704. Did, did your initial training and your experience as a flight engineer in, inform your, your life as a pilot? Maybe against some of your colleagues who didn't get to do that. Um, perhaps, perhaps. Um, but in, in my time as a flight engineer, we would probably get more into a situation or a snag, whereas as a third pilot, if it doesn't work, switch it off. Mm. No, we can do that. We had, we had a troubleshooting manual on the airplane as well. But it certainly did no harm, you know, mm. if that's the way you, you want to, to think about it. Um, and it made doing type rating courses uh, kind of easy as well because you had an, an idea of systems and their workings and all that sort of stuff. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Stuff. By the time you're coming towards the end of your your professional career, and I know you're still working, we'll talk about that in a moment, but you would have been then into, what, the fly-by-wire, the Airbus generation? No, I had a bit to go on that one um, mm. because after the 7-4, uh, they were short co-pilots on the 111 in Europe, so I had to come off. I didn't get the full time on it. And then, um, as is the way things are, are planned to the nth degree in aviation, as we know, I'm sitting here at home on a Sunday evening. I get a phone call from crew control. Are you still interested in the command position on the on the commuter division? And I oh, said, right. yes. Well, so-and-so has dropped out. You're next on seniority. Do you want it? Yes, I do. Your command assessment starts in the morning. So <laughs> from there, I went to the, the Shorts 360. Um, ah, of course, yes. For a while. Mm. Um, and do you know what, Michael? That That was fun flying because... We were the youngest captains, youngest first officers. We had the youngest cabin crew, the youngest engineers. But we had Bill Howard keeping an eye on it because he's my instructor on the short street at 60. Oh, for heaven's sake. Around in a circle. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a great can-do attitude about it. And then uh, my boss at the time was a gentleman called Donald Foley. And he was a great character. And um, he epitomized what I believe should be a boss, you know, mm. if you if you broke the rules, you have to, you know, suffer the consequences. If you do something to help out, he was quick to come back to you and say, heard about that. Thanks very much. We appreciate it. Mm. And one of the things he did was he took us new captains together and he said, don't let that fourth stripe go to your head. You treat people with dignity and respect no matter who they are or what they are. We're all part of this team. And I, I would like to think that I lived by that advice uh, throughout my career as a captain. And that was back in 1984. Mm. So flew that for a while. And um, hand fly, half the airplanes had autopilots. The other half hadn't. And you'd spend all the time, you know, a long day, multi-sector day, hand flying the airplane. But it, it put manners on you. Mm. Down in the... Um, the mark, like we didn't go above 10,000 feet. If we went above 10,000 feet, we couldn't stay up there for 30 minutes and then we come back down again because it gets a little bit lack of oxygen up there. And, uh, right, in, some, in terms of pressurization and stuff like that. We, yeah. we, none. 
None. None. All right. No. Oh, okay. Nothing. Nothing. So you really were down in the dirty oh, weather. Oh, yeah. And we were flying yeah. into exotic places, you know, that had no... ILSs or anything and yeah. it was NDB yeah. cloud break procedures and I won't use the derogatory title that's often referred to that aeroplane but uh, if I was to say that it, sometimes I've heard it referred to as a flying porta cabin uh, what was it like in a crosswind um, it, it, it was it was jaunty <laughs> <laughs> um, it it, it um, The wind just caught it and moved it. It kind of didn't flow around it because, as people mm. said, it'd be lovely if they took it out of the box. But once, <laughs> once, you, got, once you got the swing of it um, and had this mm. trailing link undercarriage that it would make a, an approach that would shake, rattle and roll into a smooth landing at the end of it. Ah, right, so, yes. Yeah, so. um, yeah, it... it it, it was fine. And, it, it, you know, on my last day in Aer Lingus, when I got off the 3.30, if someone said to me, listen, we're bringing the 360s back to fly around the place. Do you want it? I'd be in there before you could say Jack Robinson. You loved it. Yeah. I did, and I loved the people I worked with. They were, mm. they were great, you know. And we even carried half mil topographical charts in the aeroplane. And in, in, in good weather, we could, um, you know, we go down about 4,000 feet down to Cork. And I, I remember we did that on a beautiful morning. And I said to the cabin crew, I said, were you busy? No. No one wanted anything. I said, what happened? They were all stuck out the windows. Stuck out the windows looking at it, looking yeah. Looking at the countryside. And um, mm. it was great. We met, met a few characters there. And uh, I don't know how we are for time, but... There is no time. All right. This is the joy of a podcast. <laughs> there, was, there was one morning I was getting on the aeroplane and um, there were these two old la elderly ladies uh, from, from Dublin. And as I'm walking up the aeroplane, one is trying to push the other into her seat. Now, on the, on the shorts, there was one, one seat on this side. There was the aisle and there was two seats. And then you had the wardrobe doors, sliding doors where the crew climbed in to the seat, right? right? Mm. And... The conversation went something like that was, uh, Maisie, come on, would you ever get in? Here comes the driver. And on I'm saying, oh, <laughs> mistake number one, you know. So I'm walking up anyway, and uh, the brave one says to me, come here, son. And I thought, mistake number two. I said, yes, madam, what can I do with you? It's Maisie. She's nervous of flying. And I said to her, Maisie, are you worried about flying? Oh, Jesus, don't talk to me. I'm scared of my life. I said, is the heart racing and beating out of your chest? Oh, Jesus, is it what? And I said, you've got butterflies the size of seagulls? Oh, good God, yeah, I have. I said, I feel exactly like you do every time I come to work. <laughs> but you know something? I said, the doc has given me some medication that works brilliantly. And I said, so much so I can now even open one eye for takeoff and landing. <laughs> I tell you what, I'll send you some back. And the two of them sat into the seat like lambs to the slaughter. They just went... Jesus, what have we got here, you know? So anyway, yeah. we're, we were going to Edinburgh. <laughs> I'll never forget, it was like long haul for us. We ended up going to Edinburgh, and it was a beautiful morning, and it was dead calm and all that sort of stuff. And you could see Samson and Delilah, you could see Stormont, or Goliath, yeah, Samson and Goliath, and you could see oh, Stormont. The cranes, yes, yeah, yeah. And sometimes if you were lucky, when you're up there, you'd see submarines on the surface going in and out, and then you see the, the ships doing crazy manoeuvres during the perisher. Anyway, we got up to, I, asked, I said to the girl, listen, give Maisie and Imelda uh, a double brandy with my compliments, and say the captain has sent us a medicine down. And you know what, Michael, when you think of it, in today's social media, that would have been yeah. on the thing before I'd hit the ground in bloody Edinburgh. So we, we got up to Edinburgh, and we park outside the stand, the beam, the building, when it was, you know, 
leisurely in those days. Mm. And the phone, the bell, morning bell goes off and it's the, the cabin crew. And she says, Angela, we've got a problem down here. I says, what's this wee bit? I said, up here, we've no problem. Whatever happens. The doors are closed. And then behind the wardrobe, that's your fault, you know. She says, uh. your two girlfriends are refusing to get off the airplane. I said, what? You'd better come down because all the passengers are off and the cleaners are trying to come on. I said, okay. So I, you know, tug out and down I go. And the two of them are sitting there grins you know and, and the eyes and um i went up to have a chat with them <laughs> and i knew instantly that these two ladies were bulletproof now you know because <laughs> early in the morning they may not your medicine worked the medicine worked and they've been flying up at nine thousand feet and i said uh, ladies are you okay did you have a nice flight oh jesus it was lovely it was the best ever i said great and i said would you do it again oh yeah i'd love to do it again it'd be great i said Super. So I said, listen, girls, you have to get off and let the crew out. And we just wanted to say thank you to you. I said, ah, oh, you're very good. Thank you very much indeed. Come here. Are you coming up here next Wednesday? And I say, why, what's on next Wednesday? We're coming home. And we want you to bring us home. I said, get off this airplane. I said, you pair of wenches. You've cost me a fortune already. Would you, would you bring us in, love? I said, come on, I'll bring mm. you in. So I, I helped these two ladies down. And we, and we had very small steps like a little step ladder you use for little ladder yeah get to the top of the wardrobe at home kind of stuff mm. anyway they both latch on now luckily there's only a short distance to go into the terminal building now the two of them their gyros hadn't spun up or they'd spun down whichever <laughs> way you're looking at it and they are wavering all over the place and if anybody had seen it it would have looked like two old age pensioners supporting the captain bringing them into the building so, Social media is right, oh, Angelo. Could you imagine that on Twitter? <laughs> so there were some, uh, some, some, uh, some nice memories of, of flying that airplane mm. uh, and the people out there, you know. So, you made a reference to your, your last flight on the A330. Yeah. What's that like for, for a pilot? It's, um, it's mixed emotions. Mm. Um, I was lucky that I brought my family with me and, and my, my mum. And um, unfortunately, my dad had passed away at this stage and my son was with me. And, mm. and my son at the time was an engineer on the ramp. And in fact, when I went solo as a captain on the A330, as an apprentice, he was on the headset, giving me the thumbs wow. up and saying goodbye. When, oh, I, when I came back, yeah. he was the first guy to meet me because they'd be the early crew on the BTR, the, the turnaround. Well, mm. called the BTR, but now not anymore. So he was with me and uh, it was Chicago. And... It was a day I've been dreading for months, you know, because uh, I knew that a part of my career that I'd enjoyed, and I worked for a top-class company, the you know, mm. a huge standards. And when it, even my day in, in the hangars, Aer Lingus Maintenance had a worldwide reputation. Flight Operations had a worldwide reputation mm. where they helped so many emerging countries set up their airlines. That's right, and I yeah. was leaving this behind. I was leaving a great aeroplane. And um, I said to the, the, the co-pilot, I said, I hope you don't mind. I said, but I'm going to fly it over and I'm going to fly it home. Because normally mm. we do one-on-one base. Said, you swap, yeah. Have it no yeah. other way, Angelo. And I said, that's great. So I had my, uh, my son and my brother, Con who's uh, also in aviation. Uh, he's a company called Aviation Ground Services, and he trains people, you know, just lots of weight and balance and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And in fact, he's, he's 
belong, he's with us now in, in Aero Club 2000 in Abbey Shoal, teaching him to fly. But they were on board. Uh, my mum was on board. My wife and daughters were there. And um, I remember, you know, the last time. And I said, right, if this is my last one. So I disconnected the autopilot, disconnected the autothrottle. I'm sure my boss, Jimmy Devlin, heard it at the time he go apoplectic. <laughs> and I hand flew the aeroplane off the ocean all the way down to the to my final landing off it. Wow. And yeah. I was the last person off the aeroplane. So everybody got off, the crew got off, the passengers got off, the engineers or cleaners hadn't come on board, mm. gathered up my bits and pieces, put my uniform cap on for the last time. I stood at the doorway of the cockpit and looked in for one last time and then walked up the jetway and, and that was the end of it, the start of a new phase of my career. A lovely story. Uh, let's t- quickly talk about the new phase because we could probably do a second episode <laughs> on the basis of what it is you've been doing since. Yeah. Uh, what are you doing? Well, what am I doing? Um, the main things I'm doing is the MCC uh, jock and APS with SimTech. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I, I was very lucky that I uh, went and I did my MCC course in, in SimTech for to be an instructor. Yes. And I had Mike Murphy, Lord, rest him was my mm. instructor and Mike and I he was my co-pilot on the Shorts 360 way back in Erlingus you know wow. and I was very fond of Mike and I was away in Spain when he passed away uh, with FTE and I couldn't get back and mm. um, but we did a lot of work together and, and he was a super guy to work with so I do that and then my son went to FTE he got into the Erlingus cadet scheme I went down there to, for his graduation, I got to pin his wings on him, which made me very proud of him, which I am. And oh, don't forget my daughters if they listen in, probably not, but proud of them all. And more, and, and particularly my four grandkids, they're at the center of my universe. And my long suffering wife as well, she's great. Um, so uh, while I was down there, uh, Derek said to me, Dad, uh, Wayne Morgan, who's the, the, the head of training there, wants to talk to you. And I said, What did you do? Did you upset the man? Why does he want to talk to me? He's not going to have a chat. So I went and I spoke to Wayne, and um, Wayne has a great history. Like, he flew Vulcans for the Royal Air Force and all that sort of stuff. And we're sitting having a chat, like you and I. And he says, oh, by the way, this is your interview. And I said, okay, uh, how am I doing? He said, you're doing grand. I said, okay, fine enough. So he then asked me to, to join the multi-pilot training department uh, in FTE. And um, I'm down there teaching people MCC Jock, but also the MPL, the multi-pilot, uh, multi-crew pilot license uh, mm. on the 737-800 simulator. And they've just got themselves just about four months, five months before the COVID thing hit, they got an A320 uh, sim. So I was doing both uh, 737 and, and A320. Mm. Um, and then I got involved in CRM training, um, went uh, over to a company called Global Air Training, and uh, trained to be same as myself yeah i was there yeah i trained to be uh, a crm trainer uh with die warby and the gang and then mm-hmm. um a few months after i came back i got a phone call from die saying you know would i like to join the team as an instructor so i said i'd love to so i went back over and did some refresher stuff and then uh, sat in and did co-hosting with andy johnson great guy mm, yeah. uh, and worked with andy and i do crm training and um they sent me off to places like Mongolia and Moldova to do CRM training down there for various... We're back to the dirty jobs that somebody has to do again, aren't we? Oh, shocking. And yeah. um, mm. interesting places, interesting people. And particularly when I was in Moldova, I met those guys who were flying the mill helicopters. 
And one guy had just come up from Antarctica. He spent three months in Antarctica, and the photographs he had of operating those helicopters was amazing. Mm. And also the type of flying he was doing, particularly with um, firebombing. He'd go to Turkey or he'd go to Spain. And in some cases, they'd be so far away from civilization that they'd, they'd, they'd camp beside the helicopter. They'd get up in the morning, fold their tent, jump in the helicopter, go off and put a fire out. Not, not, a, ba- not a bad story or a bad life you know, that one. So that's, that's yeah. what I'm doing now and display flying the, in the summertime with the cat. Well, that's what I was going to. We're, we're coming to the end of our chat, I suppose. And, and I rarely envy people. That's one of the experiences I've had in life. I'm, I'm happy with my lot. But I'm green with jealousy for what you're going to tell me now, because you actually managed to fly one of my favourite aircraft. Tell us about the Catalina. Oh, well, um, I'd always seen, and, and I, I first actually climbed aboard one at um, Airspec in um, Baldonald many years ago when mm. a guy called Dizzy mm. Adekut, who was a test pilot with Vickers. In fact, if you've ever seen the, the pictures of the VC-10 with the RB211 strapped to the side of it, Dizzy was one of the main test pilots on that. So um, I had a look around it, and there was one parked up at Dublin Airport that was had wires all around it that was doing survey work. And I thought, okay, mm. yeah, fine. And then I went over to see the two uh, Lancasters flying at Duxford. And... I heard over the, the, the PA that plane sailing air displays had, you know, they had vacancies for people to come on board and, and join. So I thought, okay, the kids are growing up. Why not? <laughs> went over and um, I uh, went over for, a, a, you know, an, an open day, got to fly in the back of it with a bunch of other people. The ironic thing is you pay a hundred quid, but if you joined, you got the money back. Now, as soon as oh, we landed... Mm. Only two people were left standing of the 10 that showed up. They all just wanted the, to get a spin in the aeroplane and it disappeared because then the deep pocket thing came in. <clears throat> and it was owing to my, my, my dear mom's late estate that allowed me to become a shareholder. Now, I think I owed the portable loo on the aeroplane, but I'm not sure. I haven't found yeah, out what yeah. I do own. <laughs> so um, got involved in that and went over and flew and did a, did a type rating course. So we had to do a ground school. Then we had to do taxi training, then we did flight training, and then we did a checkout. And we're under the, 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 the eagle eyes of uh, Paul Warren Wilson, who's a very famous display pilot, um, because he was flying, he was responsible for bringing the first Catalina into Europe. And then we have an engineer called um, Gary Short, an amazing man who rescued it out of Loch Ness there before Christmas and put it onto dry land, changed the engine, put it back mm. in the water and got it back to the Oxford. And Natalie Guider in ops, so there's a team effort. And then I decided I did um, two years as co-pilot on the display. And then I checked out then to be captain and flying it for about three years as captain now. And I just love it. It's, it's the buzz of the air shows. And, you know, mm. you get on the right side of the crowd line and you get out there. You meet lovely people. You meet great, all the top notches in the in the air display world. And my first display as captain, no pressure, was at Duxford. I mean, the high altar of display flying, a formidable flight control committee. And woe yeah. betide you if you get too close. Everyone in the crowd knows all of the data and what that airplane <laughs> should be doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I got to, to do that and fly it. And um, I've been to Spain with it, um, been to the Czech Republic with it, been to Poland, been to Germany, Belgium, uh, where else? Uh, then we went up to Denmark 
up to Norway, around the UK, and then most of the shows in the last number of years uh, here. Uh, and that's because I I bent our good colleague Shay's arm to get the aeroplane over, so he'd bring it over for Bray and down to Foynes. And um, it's I remember that year. That was that was a great. That one. was a great yeah. one. And it's yeah. it's very evocative flying these old aeroplanes because you know when you sit and you think about what we're doing now you know i'm i'm on the the you know the wrong side of whatever number and oh, we're not talking age now we, we don't talk leave that age. one alone we yeah. leave that one alone yeah. Um, yeah. but let's just say you know punches was a trainee pilot when i started off you know <laughs> um but when you think about it you know young fellas in their 20s and younger were flying these things on operations mm. and you know, we'd be flying across Europe in this thing when we do 120 knots on it. And if you think, what was it like during the war? Now, there's no one yeah. shooting at us and people are in- inquiring. And every now and again, some of our traffic units say, is there any chance of a flyby? You know, <laughs> we say, what? Uh, off we go and we whiz past the airport mm. and, and do it for them. But you come back at uh, the trip we had from, from Poland was gin clear all the way across. And you're sitting there cruising along in this thing and you think you know the you know the americans did this daylight stuff we're mm. out for a jolly with this or we we when we did the display the last display i think we did out of bray uh you know paul bonham and um who was with them uh paul was flying the the mustang and was it steve was flying the, the messersmith but my crew chief, one of the lads down the back, the crew chief down the back, he said, Angela, look out the left side, coming up on your side. So I look out and there's this Mustang sitting beside me. Mm. And you think, wow, this is what it's all about. Because I have a handful <laughs> with the aeroplane and I couldn't get to the bloody camera. I said, when am I going to get this? And then, you know, Paul waggles the wings, a big wave, see in Duxford and puts the power on. Oh. So yeah. what's it like flying it? Uh, it's great. It's, it's not an easy aeroplane to fly. Um, you, ha- you can't take your hands off it really you get used to it um, it's historical and when we were in Denmark and Norway a lot of people who operated on them as crew would come and talk to us and then people in the crowd then we opened the airplane up to people and we let mm. them in so we sit there and up they come and we hear all sorts of stories and um, people who are there and then I remember in the Czech Republic a young couple with a new baby came up to see the aeroplane and they said to me would you hold the baby and can we take a picture of you with her with you by the aeroplane i said sure so i have this tiny little infant in my hand gorgeous little kid she was and these people are taking a picture so at some stage down the road they'll be able to show the daughter you were at this is your first air show this is one of the pilots and this is the airplane that was there this is the airplane it may also be used in a paternity suit later in court but that's a different story yeah I don't know what name I gave them anyway but never hopefully not Angelo, thank you so much for joining us on okay. the program. I have a funny feeling we could talk to you again, even just about uh, the Catalina, because there's a whole Irish connection, of course, and Enniskillen and the bases that were oh, up yeah. there. So I, I, maybe we'll have to round up a couple of people and, and get a few heads on together to talk about it. Yeah. And look, we also look forward to um, the return of air shows oh, and God, also yeah. possibly hearing your dulcet tones uh, when it comes back to, uh, to, know, to that I, season. I, I leave that to you. Hopefully I'll be flying at him, you know. Um, yeah, that would... I know. But if... That, that 
that is the dilemma, isn't it? Where you'd actually sometimes prefer to be up there flying rather than down below actually yeah, doing well, the commentary as well. That's how I well. was uh, doing it. And look, yeah. I got to fly in some exotic aeroplanes. But you know, Mike, mm-hmm. we're involved and we deal with a lot of young people and I you know, don't want to be going on and on too much. But the sad thing mm-hmm. is the access that you and I had to aeroplanes when we were growing up was far greater mm-hmm. than it is now. Yeah. Yeah, even flight deck visits yeah. were, 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 you know, crucial for people making the decision they wanted to do the job. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had, well, yeah. one of the flight deck visits we had on the 7-4 was Joe Allen. Now, Joe Allen was a mission specialist on the shuttle. So he came up one night to have a chat with us. And right. he was a great guy. Um, and then it goes mm. to the other extreme. I get a, a call from the girls said, there's a lad, man down here. He'd like to bring his son up to see the cockpit. Yeah, bring him in. His son was two. Two, oh, okay. two years old, yeah. barely able yeah. to walk, and you know. But Daddy I, wanted to see the car. I think Dad wanted Dad to see it, it, yeah. But you know, yeah. young people don't have that. They don't. Mm. They, and and I've often wondered how many careers, you know, haven't taken off. If you'll excuse the pun, because mm. the days of the hangar rat seems to be yes. gone. Yeah. How many yeah. people start? But do you know what way? does happen though is that if you go down to any of the small airfields around the country, yeah. um, uh, you will get a great welcome. A lot of the time. Oh, well, if I can put a plug in here, definitely at Aero Club 2000 in Abbey Shore. And I'll match it with Lime Tree. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the great bunch of guys down in Lime Tree. It's a buzz. Yeah. And it's, unfortunately, people don't know. And maybe we're so tied up in social media and computers and flight sims and all that sort of stuff. We, mm. we don't want to go and experience what it's all about. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, maybe... You know, these kind of podcasts would get people interested in it, Mike, and, and, Mm. you know, light the spark that's in there somewhere. And if, if, you know, if I could, if I could say that to anybody who wants to come up, I I lived a dream, Michael, you know, I did, I never worked a day in my life and I got paid for it, you know? Now, there's there's a lot of hard work involved and some sacrifice involved, but it's it's worth it. And if there's anybody listening in on this, and you know, come, you know, we're there in in, in Simtech. They can come and they can go to the local flying club. I mean, there's there's plenty of places people can go to get it to get help and get information on it. And, yeah. and do it, and, and you will find there's a uh, there's a good a good level of generosity when it comes to that. Oh, yeah. uh, because there's always the possibility that the person you encourage will give you the upgrade the next time you're flying. Well, yeah. you can always think yeah. ahead like that, you know. Yeah, you can, you can't know, you? Yeah. Might be never happened. Office. I don't know why I'm even thinking about it. <laughs> well, that's why I said I better go and drive it myself because I'll never get an upgrade, you know. So, got the best, got the best <laughs> seat in the house. Angela Cunningham, thank you for joining us on Thanks, Long Mike. Final. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Long Final from Squawk7000.ie. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and do tell your friends. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.